This evening we want to read from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. John 16, 1 through 16. Hear the Word of God. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore, said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. May God bless the reading of his uh, profound and sacred word. Well, we have come in the Heidelberg Catechism, dear church family, to the eighth article of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. And tonight, we look then at Lord's Day 20 in conjunction with John 16, 13 and 14. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it 
unto you. And then Lord's Day 20, question 53, which is remarkably short. What dost thou believe concerning the Holy Ghost? First, that He is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that He has also given me to make me, by a true faith, partaker of Christ and all His benefits, that He may comfort me and abide with me forever. Well, this is just four lines of type here, but it is an amazing summary of what the Bible tells us is the essence of the saving work of the Holy Spirit in our souls. So I want to keep my focus tonight just on those precious words that are so scriptural and call the sermon Five Major Truths About the Holy Spirit. Five Major Truths About the Holy Spirit. We will see Him first as a fulfilling spirit, then a given spirit, a Christ-centered spirit, a comforting spirit, and an abiding spirit. Five major truths about the Holy Spirit. Fulfilling, given, Christ-centered, comforting, and abiding. Now there have been people that have said that the Heidelberg Catechism doesn't have much emphasis on the Holy Spirit because, well, Lord's Day 20 is only four lines. But that's rather deceptive. Lord's Day 21 and 22 are also about the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Apostles' Creed, Articles 8 through 12, really is about the Spirit's ministry. And then you will notice throughout the entire catechism, there is this pneumatological, that is, Spirit-oriented emphasis. Wherever we turn, the word Spirit is popping up everywhere. Because the Holy Spirit is involved in the entire experiential order of salvation that He works in the lives of of, of the people of God. You can't have experiential misery without the Holy Spirit. You can't have experiential deliverance without the Holy Spirit. And you can't have experiential gratitude without the Holy Spirit. You really can't have any true religion in the soul without the Holy Spirit. And the catechism again and again, implicitly, is emphasizing that. But here it's remarkable at how few words they use to describe this eighth article of the Apostles' Creed. You could, you could write a whole book as uh, people like John Owen and Thomas Goodwin did among the Puritans on the saving work of the Holy Spirit. One time years ago, you remember, we, we preached 29 sermons out of this Lord's Day talking about the Spirit's work at every step of salvation. So there's just a lot that could be said here. But there is something to say, despite all the frequent references to the Holy Spirit in the Catechism, there is something to say for this, that the Spirit does His work most of the time in a kind of 
underground way, an inner way, if you will. He works silently, without fanfare, in the deepest recesses of the heart. So that all that would give him publicity rather than the Son, our Savior, seems to be pushed back by the Spirit himself. Spirit is not an intention getter. He doesn't put himself in the foreground. He's more like a floodlight that shines on the fullness of Jesus Christ. His task, his main task after all, is to empty us and then take the thing of our own righteousness and then take the things of Christ and reveal them to us. He's a Christ-centered spirit as, as we're going to see tonight in our, in our third thought. And so, in a way, it's very appropriate that Lord's Day 20 is succinct. Seems like a quiet Lord's Day. Uh, And yet, the words that are used here are are deep, aren't they? Co-eternal. Intimate words. Partaker of Christ. Comfort me. Abide with me. Those are weighty quiet terms, but weighty terms. So that raises the question, exactly who is this Holy Spirit and how does he, how does he do that work in us in this quiet, weighty way? How, how does he actually do what our instructors say here in these four short lines? Well, We begin with the catechism's assertion that he is a fulfilling spirit. And what do I mean by that? Well, first that he is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. So you can't think of the Spirit separate from the Father and the Son. The Trinity is one. You can't imagine the Trinity, can you, without the Holy Spirit? But you also can't imagine the Holy Spirit, without the Father and the Son. It's interesting that the Dutch version of the Heidelberg Catechism says that the Holy Spirit is together with the Father and the Son. The English says co-eternal. Now, the point here of the Catechism is not at this point to prove the deity of the Holy Spirit. That's already been done earlier on in Lord's Day 8. So we're not going to go back and and repeat that. But what the Catechism is emphasizing here is that this Holy Spirit is a divine person, as we've seen in Lord's Day 8, but a divine person who is together with the Father and the Son. And they have a chemistry of working together, this co-eternal triune God. A chemistry that has an order to it. We call the Father the first person, the Son the second person, the third person being the Holy Spirit. Not because it's an order of hierarchy, but it's a co-equal order. But there is an order, you see. The Father is the absolute cause, the Son is the mediating cause, and the Spirit is the applying cause of the salvation of God's people. So, salvation is of the Father, 
through the Son, by the Spirit. There's a, there's a coordinate working among the three persons. And the way to summarize that the best with regard to the Holy Spirit is that He has a fulfilling, a fulfilling ministry. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, God sent His Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who applies God's truths and God's Son home to the heart. He's, he's the one who fulfills. He's the completer, if you will. He's always completing things, finishing things, beautifying things, preparing things. He's the worker in the soul. So on Pentecost, when he's really poured out, you see that so richly. Really, there's a filled house and there's filled mouths and there's filled hearts and there's a filled church. The Spirit is together with the Holy Father and the Holy Son. That peculiar, blessed, divine being who takes what the Father has decreed and what the Son has merited and He makes it reality and He brings it home. And he works in the soul the wonderful works of God. He's the primary person who indwells us and does that work of salvation in us from regeneration all the way to glorification. He's the fulfilling spirit. Now, that fulfilling role of the spirit, however, applies to more than our salvation. Let me just mention four things. First of all, he is that fulfiller, that completer, that finisher in creation. That's number one. He puts the finishing touches on creation, as it were. He's the spirit who's brooding over the face of the waters. He, he, God speaks, he applies it. So everything appears on the earth, as God says in Genesis 1. Uh, Psalm 104 verse 30 says that when the Lord sends forth His Spirit, He renews the face of the earth. You see, the manifest luxuriousness of springtime, for example, is from Him. When everything sings and gives forth the fragrance of new life. The Holy Spirit makes things festive, makes things alive, makes things spring into being. He's the God of creation. He's the finisher, the completer. The one who sends the snow, as the scriptures say. From him, God creates man out of the dust of the ground. What's the finishing act of God's creation of man? He breathes into him the breath of life. The spirit. Spirit means, the original word is pneuma, which is breath. The breath of life, you see. This is beautiful, isn't it? The spirit is always the one breathing into us the breath of life in our natural creation, in our recreation. He's, he's the one who, who gives the beauty of life. All true beauty in this world finds its source in one way or another in the Holy Spirit. So in Ezekiel's vision, when the stream of the Holy Spirit flows, where that stream flows... Everything in the Dead Sea, you remember that vision, comes to life. When you think of the Spirit, you think of life. You think of 
breath, you think of vitality, you think of a finishing touch, you think of reality. So that's the first thing, creation. And then there is, of course, what I've mentioned already, recreation. He's the one that raises the dead to life uh, through regeneration, but also uh, through bringing things to the highest level of beauty. He doesn't just regenerate us and we go on our way, uh, kind of the same old people. Maybe just with a little bit less sin. No, no. He beautifies the work of grace in us. He, he shows us the ugliness of sin. He makes us fall out of love with the attractiveness of sin. And he, he raises us up to see the luster of grace. And he makes grace sparkle within us. So by nature, the world looks very colorful, and maybe true Christianity looks rather bland to our God-hating, man-hating hearts. But when the Holy Spirit comes and makes life to abound within us, all of that is reversed. The world now looks dull and deceiving and boring and gray and monotones, nothing really that attractive but the work of God's Spirit in us and the truths of the Bible and the everlasting future of the people of God comes alive. The, the truths of the Bible come alive by the Holy Spirit in our hearts and they become three-dimensional, full of color, full of life. He's the fulfiller, the beautifier within us. The great artisan who finishes the building, to use another scriptural metaphor, So that the living stones are just that, living stones, cut and fit, so that what is not good must be chiseled away. And he chisels us to fit us into his militant church and ultimately his church triumphant. But then thirdly, he's not only the fulfiller in terms of creation and recreation through our regeneration in our spiritual life, but also through the new creation. He's the one that puts the finishing touches in this, in this glorious coming day. He will do that. And the new heavens and the new earth. The Father has created the world. The Son has redeemed it. But the Holy Spirit makes it into a beautiful temple where men and women will, and boys and girls and teenagers will worship God forever. Just as we read in Genesis 2, verse 1, then the heavens and the earth were finished. God finished His work, and then it was His Sabbath. And then we read of Christ. He said it is finished. He finished His redeeming work of humiliation on the cross. And then it was the Sabbath rest for the Son. But the Sabbath rest for the Holy Spirit has not yet dawned. He's still continuing on. So that when the new earth glows under the new heaven, and when all sin will have been done away out of creation, when over mountainside and plain shall peace spring forth from righteousness, as Psalter 198 says, only then shall the end goal of the Holy Spirit have been achieved, and it will be the eternal Sabbath of rest for the Holy Spirit in glory. So you see, he's always putting these finishing applying touches on the work of the Father and the work 
of the Son. He's together with the Father and the Son in this most beautiful cooperation, this most beautiful harmony between the three persons of the Trinity. And so we can say, can't we, that there is in this um, wonderful, wonderful relationship The Holy Spirit is the fulfiller of the Trinity. He's the fulfiller of the creation. He's the fulfiller of the recreation. He's the fulfiller of the new creation. He's essential. From eternity past to eternity future. But how can He be given to me? If He's this wonderful fulfiller, this wonderful beautifier, How do I personally come to to know Him? You see, that's the natural question that flows out of point one, which leads me to point two. He's a given Spirit. Our instructor says, first, that He is true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that He has also given me. Don't you just love the catechism's personalist? That's why it was written. It was designed to be a preaching tool. To take the summary of what the Bible says about every subject. To put it in personal terms. To comfort the people of God. Well, here's just another direct assertion of that comfort. He has given me. doesn't say He's given you, plural. Even though that's true of every true believer in the world. But the instructor wants to get very personal He wants each believer to feel the comfort, the power, the reality of the internal work of the Holy Spirit. He wants each each person in the congregation to ask the question of Acts 19 verse 2. Have ye received the Holy Spirit since you've believed? You see, the catechism wants to take me aside for a moment. Wants to take me into a little private room And look me in the eye and say, do you know the Holy Spirit of God at work in your life? How is your life of faith? Does the Holy Spirit dwell in you? Does He work in you? And that's a question that perhaps many of us would rather avoid. We know it's coming, of course. Every time the elders visit us, they ask us that question in one way or another, don't they? How, how's your spiritual life? Uh, you, you don't have a family visitation if they don't visit your soul and they don't ask about the Holy Spirit working in you. And you see, He is given to me or He is not given to me. There's no in-between. He's not half-given to me. Is he? Now, there's degrees, of course, of awareness of his being given to me. But there are also marks by which we may examine ourselves, whether that Holy Spirit is indwelling in us or not. No man can say that Jesus is Savior, Paul tells us. Savior the Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit works in us, He makes Jesus the Lord of our lives. We want to please the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to live unto Him. We want to hate sin. We want to live a life of obedience, you see. When the Holy Spirit is given to me, 
there's something felt. There's something experienced. There's something that changes in my life, changes radically, such that I want to live for God and not for myself. I want to hate sin with holy passion. I want to put it to death. I wish every sin in me were dead. And I want to live for God. I want to put off the old man with all the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. And I want to put on the new man with the bowels of kindness and love and mercy and compassion. Well, if, if those things aren't in you, you ought to know that, don't you think? What motivates your life is the Holy Spirit given to you. Now, it's not spiritual pride to say the Holy Spirit is given to me as the confession of a true child of God. Sometimes there are people that think, well, if I, if I dared to say that, that, that would be way, way too much. That would be, that would be pride. Dear church family, the most humbling thing in all the world is to be able to say the Holy Spirit is given to hell-worthy, wretched, sinful, undeserving me. That's not pride. That fills me with awe. fills me with a sense of mystery. It fills me with wonder. It fills me with joy. It fills me with God-honoring thoughts. That God creator of the universe, would give his Holy Spirit to me who forfeited it 10,000 times and change me and make me want to obey him and do his will, make me love the Bible and, and, and love his word and, and love sound preaching and, and love the things of God and hate sin. That was foreign to what I was. And the only reason you're that way is because of that indweller inside of you who's called the Comforter, the Holy Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit comes down in the day of Pentecost in a fullness that the world had never seen. And He abides in the church. And now the church is spread out over the whole world. Satan is bound. We're in the millennium age, obviously. Because the Spirit's work is no longer almost exclusively confined to one little dot on the globe called Israel. But now it's all over the world. And Satan cannot destroy it. But it's also in every individual heart of every believer that Satan cannot destroy that the Holy Spirit is given to me. So when the Holy Spirit was poured out and cascaded over the multitude so that 3,000 were saved and the church was multiplied by 21 under one sermon, there, were, there was a tremendous outpouring. But that Holy Spirit's outpouring continues until this day in various measures in what our baptism form calls the daily renewing of our lives. Daily. Daily He renews me. Daily, He continues to give me those desires to honor Him and fear Him despite all my battles with indwelling sin. And daily, He gives me His Bible, which is His authoritative guide 
And he gives me a connection with that Bible. So that when the Bible speaks, it speaks with authority in my soul. No, I don't look for separate announcements from the Bible or separate inspirations or separate revelations that the Holy Spirit does not give. But I look for the Lord, the Holy Ghost of God, to take the Bible and apply it to my soul so that I love the Word and listen to the Word and want to obey the Word and want to bow before the Word and want to subject my whole life to the Word. That's it. I may know the Holy Spirit is given to me. When I hate what God hates in His Word, and I love what God loves in His Word, and I listen to His voice in His Word, and I thirst after righteousness spoken about in His Word, and the fruits of my life manifest that the work of the Spirit has penetrated me through the application of His Word. See, the Spirit is always connected with the Word, the living Word, Jesus, and the written Word, the Bible. And He brings the two together with power in my soul. Which leads me to my third thought, that He's a Christ-centered Spirit. A Christ-centered Spirit. Notice what our instructor says. He's true and co-eternal God with the Father and the Son. Secondly, that He's also given me to do what? To make me, by a true faith, partaker of Christ and all His blessings. Partaker of Christ and all His blessings. Now, how does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, John tells us in our text that He will guide you into all truth. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself. Whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak. He shall show you things to come. He shall glorify Me, Jesus says. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And that conviction of making room for the things of Christ in the soul, it begins earlier in the chapter by conviction of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So what the Spirit does when he makes a sinner partaker of Jesus and his benefits, he first convicts that sinner of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And especially of sin because I believe not in Christ. Yes, all kinds of other sins he convicts me of as well. But it becomes my burden, you see, as he empties me of my own righteousness, that I do not have that faith that receives Christ and makes me partaker of him and all his benefits. And I begin to realize what I'm missing. That too is the work of the Holy Spirit. To empty me from vessel to vessel. So that I see my unrighteousness, my filthy, ragged righteousness. And that everything for me cannot bring muster in God's sight to the smallest degree. In fact, when the Spirit does a thorough work in us, He shows us that every single thing we could possibly ever think or say or do, we never do by nature, never think by nature, never say by nature, Loving God above all, loving our neighbors ourselves. So we are always sinning. Every single second. When we sit in the church pew, when we're driving our car, when we're at work, no matter what we're doing, by nature, we are always sinning. That's what the Spirit does to make us partakers of Christ. He empties us, and at the same time as He's emptying us, He begins to show us, I mean, it varies from person to person, 
Some people seem to be emptied almost all the way before they begin to see something of Christ. Other people, the process seems to go together. As He empties me, He begins to fill me with the things of Christ, or at least show them to me. And Maybe I can't receive them right away, but He begins to show me the things of Christ. That Christ has everything that I need. That His righteousness is everything that I need. That His payment for sin through His sufferings and death, and His perfect obedience to the law, His loving God above all, His neighbors Himself, that that double obedience to the law and pain for my sin, that that double obedience meets every need I could possibly have in order to be saved. And then He works exactly when most people don't know. Some people do know. Spirit's free there too. But He works in me that conviction that... By faith, trusting in Him alone. And He gives me that faith. Ephesians 2.8. It's a gift of God. By faith, I receive Christ. And I'm made a partaker of Jesus and of His benefits. So what this means from John 16.8-14 through 14, is that obviously Jesus is saying the whole goal of the Holy Spirit here, which is a summary of his ministry, by the way, is focused on Jesus. He does all the emptying, not just to be cruel to me, not just to empty me for emptying's sake. He does everything he does to empty me and to make room for Christ because he wants me to know Jesus. And he knows that if I'm a filled vessel in myself, there's no room for Jesus. So He convicts me of sin. He convicts me of my own unrighteousness. He convicts me of the judgment to come and my lack of readiness for it. And then He fills me with the things of Christ. He glorifies Christ. He receives of me, Jesus says, and He shows it unto you. So the Spirit has but one passion. That is... That Christ may be magnified. That you might know Him. He shall glorify me, for He shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. You see, the Holy Spirit is not satisfied before Christ is our all in all. That's His goal with us. And Paul in Philippians declares that he desires but one thing. That Christ would be magnified by his life or by his death. And when John the Baptist wishes that Christ might increase and he might decrease, these are expressions fully in harmony with the desire and purpose of the Holy Spirit. His goal is to center on Jesus. So that Christ increases and we count all our righteousnesses as filthy garbage and we find all our hope. Not 90%, not 99%, not 99.9%, 100% in the double obedience of Jesus and His ongoing ministry at the right hand of the Father by the Spirit and our entire salvation we see is coming to us from the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And then, as the form of baptism says, He applies to us. He applies to us that which we already have in Christ. So he makes us a partaker of Christ by faith. That happens uh, initially, the first moment we truly believe in him alone for salvation. 
Then we are regenerated. We have faith. We're made partakers of Christ. But it also says, and all his benefits. All his benefits. Of the state of humiliation, state of exaltation, prophet, priest, king, nature's person. All his blessings and benefits really is the totality of our salvation. It's hundreds of things. So what happens is the Spirit makes us partakers of Christ, saves us, and then He keeps daily renewing our, of our lives, applying to us every day the things we have in Christ. That's why we need to come to church every week. He keeps applying it every week. That's why we need to read the Bible every day. He keeps applying these wonderful truths every day. Changing us, molding us, making us more Christ-centered. So this is the love of the Holy Spirit. He makes us partakers of Christ and then of all His benefits. Of all His benefits. You see, neither the benefits only without the benefactor nor Christ without His benefits are sufficient for us. We need His benefits. We need Him interceding for us at the right hand of the Father right now, every day. But you see, the beauty of the gospel is that Christ and his benefits are never separated. But we must see that our salvation is in the person of Christ through the benefits that he has worked out through his saving work. Now, let let me just try to use an example to help you understand this. The person of Christ is first. The benefits flow out of that. Imagine if someone said to his wife, now, I, uh, I love you, I married you, we're in a state, a relationship, of marriage, so we're partakers of each other. But, um, by the way, I think it would be good if we would just see each other once a month. Uh, I mean, I do need you once in a while, but I, I'd rather... I'd rather have separation. Separation makes the heart grow fonder. Let's just meet together once a month. What would you say? I would say that's a very bad marriage. So if you're a partaker of Christ and you're married to Him, you're not content to be able to tell your conversion story, how you first came to know Him, and then stop, and then say, well, but, you know, maybe once in a while, once in a while, I get a little something out of the Bible and... Um, I don't have much of a relationship with him. But, uh, oh, I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. No problem there. Uh, I'm a partaker of Christ. Now, you see, if you're a partaker of Christ, like in a good marriage, you want, you want to be with Christ every day. You want to drink in his benefits every day. You want to be in his word every day. You want to be living in obedience every day. You want vitality. You want life. You want that finishing work of the Spirit in you. That beautifying work every day. This is the language of love. Love says, I don't just want you without the benefits And I don't want the benefits without you. I love you and the benefits. In fact, I love both so much I can't separate the two in my own mind anymore because you and your benefits are are like one to me. You see, that's the language of love. 
Love is concerned, however, ultimately in the first place with the person and not with what he gives. But what he gives through the Spirit adds luster and beauty to the relationship. And so people who only have an eye for the blessings of Christ or people who only have eye for the person of Christ and aren't concerned to live a sanctified life under his blessings, they both err and they both bring themselves in darkness. And ultimately they love themselves more than Christ. So our instructor brings them together. The Holy Spirit, he says, is given to me so that by a true faith that he gives me, I'm a partaker of Christ and all his benefits. And you see, when you experience that, that is so incredibly comforting. When he comforts me and abides with me forever out of Christ, then I have a lifestyle, a living, vital lifestyle with Jesus day by day. That's the anchor, really, of my life. It's the ship of my life is not tossed then with every little wind and wave because I'm anchored in Christ by the Spirit who comforts me and abides with me forever. Well, look. So the purpose clause here is that when I'm made a partaker by faith of Christ and His benefits, it is such that, or in order to that, the Holy Spirit may comfort me and abide with me forever. So you can't get the comfort and the abiding graces apart from Jesus and His benefits But when the Spirit applies that, you receive it by faith, the fruit of it is that you are comforted by the abiding ministry of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at both of these words. They're both important scriptural concepts. The first is the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. We saw that in the portion we read, verse 7 If I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. Remember we saw that a week or two ago. That Christ's beautiful heart in heaven, sending His Spirit on this earth to minister to every child of God, is so incredibly comforting. And it's comforting, I might take it further than what was said a week ago, it's comforting because What Christ is doing for me at the right hand of the Father is my intercessor with the Father, my advocate with the Father, the Spirit as my internal comforter, my internal intercessor, my internal advocate, the one who teaches me to groan in my prayers, groanings that cannot be uttered, the one who pleads my case, the one who testifies and witnesses with my conscience, my spirit, that I am a child of God. That internal dweller does to me in the court of my own conscience as the Spirit of Christ what Christ Himself is doing in the court of His Father's conscience in heaven for me. So this is the beauty and the joy of being a child of God. You actually have two lawyers, two advocates, interceding, pleading your case. One advocate's in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous, who pleads on the basis of his own merits. And the other advocate is in your own heart, the Holy Spirit, who also pleads on the basis of Jesus and his merits. 
And so you have the freedom to pray. So you have the freedom to believe that you are a child of God. So you have the boldness to say He has given me. It's because of that internal dwelling of the Spirit who intercedes for you. Who makes you comforted by His own work. Who makes you strong. Actually, the the very word comfort in English has the root meaning of strong. You're made strong by the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, how is the Holy Spirit the comforter to make us strong in the things of God, in the things of Jesus? Well, let me give you five five quick ways. The first I've already hinted at. It's, of course, from the Word of God. He's the supreme author of the Bible. So what he does is he takes that Word and he applies it to you to comfort you, especially the promises of Scripture. There's nothing so comforting as the promises of the Word of God. And that's a daily ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not something a child of God gets once every three years. Yes, once every three years or periodically, he may receive an extra powerful application of the Word of God that is so personally applied to him that it becomes an experience, as it were, that he never forgets. Yes, but that doesn't happen every day. The Spirit applies the Word day by day in quiet ways in your soul from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, Bible reading to Bible reading, reading of good books, communion of the saints, prayer, all these spiritual disciplines. It's like a steady dripping. He's coming to comfort you. You get comforted here by a word that someone said to you. You get comforted there by a statement you read in John Calvin's Institutes. You get comforted... uh, Tomorrow morning by, by a promise that, that, that seemed to speak to you with sweetness from the Word of God. And you can't say, well, these things are overwhelming comforts. But it's a daily comforting ministry. Again, it's like a good marriage. Good marriage doesn't function just in the, in the, in the times when you're taking vacations in the Alps and having an incredible, exotic, wonderful, ecstatic experiences. Good marriage is putting toast in the toaster for your spouse, getting your spouse a cup of tea. It's the daily activities of giving and being there and holding hands and putting your arm around each other and listening to each other. It's, it's, it's the small stuff of life, the acts of kindness. And see, the Spirit ministers to us. He indwells us. He ministers to us this way from the Word of God. Day by day, this comforting, comforting ministry of the Word of God. Someone stood with me right around the corner there after I preached a sermon some months ago and uh, shook my hand and, and said this to me. You know, I figured out that actually what you do is you bring the same message to us every single week. It's all about Jesus. And then that person paused and said, but you know, given my my sins and my need, I need the same message every week. That's exactly right, you see. That's exactly the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He keeps taking the things of Christ from the Word, keeps applying them week by week, day by day. And where would you be without the ministry of the Word from this pulpit and the ministry of the Word in your private reading and 
and, and the ministry of prayer and the ministry of uh, fellowshipping with believers. You, you're, you're, your spiritual life would be much less comforted. You, you weren't meant to be a, a lone ranger. You weren't meant to be a single coal apart from the other coals in the fire. You wouldn't be warmed. You wouldn't be comforted. The Holy Spirit uses the means of His Word to daily comfort us. That's number one. Number two, there are times of profound trial. Profound trial in our lives. Where the Holy Spirit comes to comfort us in profound ways. He matches our need. When the water comes up to our lips. How often, isn't it at such times, that He comes with a particular text that is sweet and gives us hope. Uh, that he, or that He gives us a sweet childlike submission that even as we feel submission to His deep ways of providence, to His, His cross providences, to another affliction added on top of five afflictions we're bearing already, and we find ourselves bowing under it. Uh, who's doing that? It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in you convincing you that all things work together for good to them that love God. Convincing you from some other scripture perhaps to trust Him, to trust Him, to trust Him through this trial, through that trial, every day. This is the comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit teaches us to walk by faith and not by sight. And that's a comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because so often, if you look around, there's so much to discourage us, isn't there? We could be depressed all the time. But Paul says, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave Himself for me. Who taught Paul that? Is that just something Paul pulled out of thin air? It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit inside of him. Taking the Word of God. Showing him the things of Christ. Being comforted by Jesus. To walk by faith in Him even though we can't see Him. Fourthly, the comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit is also present when we are down on ourselves. And we are so disappointed with ourselves and condemn ourselves and say, I'm not worthy of any of God's grace And we think it's hopeless. And we're disgusted with a holy disgust against our own internal indwelling sin. And we cast ourselves at the feet of God and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's all I am, Lord. Help me. And sometimes, maybe sometimes it's not even a particular text. But sometimes it's the whole... It's the whole of what the Bible is saying. The whole of the body of systematic theology of Christianity that seems to come come into you. And you say, yes, but God is a merciful God. God does delight in mercy. And you rest in Him and you trust in Him. And you get off your knees and you say, the Lord is better to me than I to Him. I just, I'll just go on. I'll just go on. Keep on trusting Him. And it's like the burden is lifted. And and you say, Lord, Thou hast comforted me in the day of my trial. Or Thou hast comforted me in the day when I was afflicted with my own weaknesses. Thou hast not rewarded me according to my iniquities. Good is the Lord and full of mercy. That's the comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
Thy word hath I hid in my heart, David says. And this Holy Spirit helps us to hide it away and to pull it back out at the right time. It's like squirrels, boys and girls. You've seen how squirrels do that, right? In the fall, they, they get all these little nuts and things and they, they hide them in different places. Acorns. And, and then in the spring when they need them, they go out and they find them. They pull them out and they eat them. That's like a believer. The Holy Spirit helps us to hide the Word. That's why it's so good to memorize the Bible. Hide the Word in our hearts. And then when we need it, He brings it to light. He brings it to our remembrance. And it is the most comforting thing you can possibly imagine. Sometimes it seems like He brings the most comforting text in the whole Bible to us just at the right time. And when we're in great need, He does that in a great way. And then fifthly, the Holy Spirit comforts us by unfolding for us time and time again the tenderness, the sympathy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That He's our great Savior, our great Lord, who has carried our transgressions, who's borne our sorrows, who takes our crosses, who's drunk the cup of the Father's wrath for us to its bottom bitter dregs. And so whatever trial we're in, we just simply say, wasn't Jesus in this trial? He was tempted in all points like as I am. The Holy Spirit shows us that. Say, well, if He was tempted, if He was tried like this, and He's innocent, and I'm guilty, I'm worthy to be tried, you see, then I rest in my high priestly Savior, in his high priestly merits, in his high priestly tenderness, in his high priestly sympathy. And then I can say no burden is too great. He'll help me through by his spirit, by his internal comforter. And so by this double comforter, the one at the Father's right hand and the one in my soul, I shall carry on to the end. And I shall trust my God to the end. Because... That's my last thought. He abides with me forever. He abides with me forever. I persevere with Him by the Spirit's grace in me because He preserves me as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit, you see, keeps working in me. Jesus said, I will pray the Father and He shall give you another comforter that He may abide with you forever. John 14, 16. It's a precious verse. This comforter who ministers to you is going to abide with you forever. He will govern you wisely, faithfully, lovingly, safely, continually, abidingly. He'll saturate your soul with the same love in which He gave you when He came to fill you with the things of Christ initially. So that you'll go on loving a triune God. He will abide with you. And he will abide in you. The Spirit cannot leave the believer any more than Christ can stop interceding for the believer. And any more than the Father can change his eternal decree of love for the believer. It's a triune abiding. But there's a special sweetness to the abiding ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
so that when I feel overwhelmed and near despair, I know he will not desert me. His patience is amazing. Sometimes I don't know what is the greater wonder. The abiding power of the Father's decree, the abiding power of the intercession of Christ, or the abiding power of the Holy Spirit within me. I've forfeited all three, a thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand times. They're all wonderful. You see, the Holy Spirit is no fair weather friend. You never have to say of the Holy Spirit, as David said of one of his best friends, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. No, the Holy Spirit will never be against you, child of God. It may correct you. It may wound you. He may show you your sin. He may strip you of your righteousness. But don't misinterpret him. Don't say with Jacob, all these things are against me when they're all for you. He's actually just guiding you to abide with you so that his work in you will go on to the end. So let me conclude this sermon by giving you four, four realities, four things for which this doctrine of the Spirit provides a foundation for your life as a true believer. The first comforting thing here is that this gives you a foundation of reality. Reality. The Spirit being that fulfiller, that finisher, that completer of the work, the one who works in you, there's a reality now to your religion. Your, your experience of sin is real. Your contrition is real. Your brokenheartedness is real. Your fleeing to God in Christ as a needy sinner is real. Your faith in the atoning blood of Christ is real. There's a sweet consciousness of pardon, of acceptance, of adoption, of joy in the Holy Ghost, and of all the benefits of salvation. These are real, blessed, sweet experiences. Now, it doesn't mean you can always grasp all of them at all the time. It doesn't mean that some of them you don't miss. The Lord has different leadings for different people. But when you're a child of God, you cannot answer a minister or an elder's question on family visitation after you say, I don't know if I'm a believer or not, when he says, do you then dare to say you're not a, a true believer? Say, if, if sin has become real and your only hope is in Christ, you get pause at that time and you say, well, I don't dare say that either. So you need more faith. But the faith that you do have is real. And what makes the... Christianity, real, is that internal work of the Holy Spirit in your soul. Secondly, the Holy Spirit, this doctrine of the person of the Holy Spirit, gives us a foundation of stability. Stability. You see, the triune God cannot separate himself from himself. The Father is bound to the Son and the Spirit. The Son is bound to the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit is bound to the Father and the Son. It's an inseparable tie between the three. All three are equally willing to save you. It's not that the Son is somehow more willing than the Father and the Spirit. No, no, no. The Father willingly chose a multitude no man can number. The Son willingly died for that exact same number. And the Holy Spirit willingly works in everyone whom the Father has given to the Son. And so there's a stability through this complete 
triune work on behalf of the sinner. And then number three, the person of the Spirit is foundational, not just for the reality of your Christianity and for the stability of it, but also for the growth of it, for the growth of it. Without the Holy Spirit, you know what? You wouldn't grow at all. You wouldn't grow at all. You'd revert back to your old nature. And you, you might still use the spiritual disciplines, but you wouldn't grow. So we're dependent on the Holy Spirit for the transfer from death to life, but we're also dependent on the Holy Spirit for our growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot take one step without the Holy Spirit. In fact, we were talking in the consistory before we came in tonight that everything in our lives without the Holy Spirit is a sham. It's a fake. It's a hypocrisy. You see, the Spirit gives reality. The Spirit gives stability. And the Spirit gives growth. You can't have one victory over one sin, not in the true sense of the word victory, in your heart without that indwelling Holy Spirit. And then finally, fourthly, the doctrine of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the foundation for enjoyment. Enjoyment. Christianity is meant to be enjoyed that I may comfort, be comforted by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Remember Lord's Day 1? And live in the enjoyment of my salvation. There's nothing so enjoyable as to have personal pronouns in my possession that He's my Savior, He's my Father, He's my Spirit given to me when I can have those personal pronouns and enjoy that I am in the center of God's love by the grace of God. There's a reality in Christianity that gives you the greatest joy in all the world. Abba, Father. My Lord and my God. And the Spirit has given me. The triune God is invested in my salvation. How could that not make you incredibly happy? And so, what a wonderful person the Holy Spirit is. What a wonderful work He does in our soul. It was said of Richard Sibbs, one of the most godly of all the Puritans, that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And he gave the credit for that to the work of the Holy Spirit, filling him with joy unspeakable. Well, love the ministry of the Holy Spirit, dear child of God, and plead on this, that He's given to comfort you and to abide with you forever, as Jesus said. Plead on that and say with David, take not thy Holy Spirit from me and live out in the joy of these wonderful things. Don't try to live without your abiding friend, without this internal paraclete who helps you in your every need, but rest your soul on this precious, comforting, abiding ministry of the Holy Spirit, which in turn rests in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that Holy Spirit, and you don't know what I'm talking about all night long tonight, Go to God for what you're missing. Say, Lord, give me thy Holy 
Spirit. Amen. Great God of heaven, we thank thee so much for this wonderful, comprehensive, Christ-centered, God-glorifying, comforting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I trust that we all understand now Rutherford's famous statement, I know not which divine person I love the most, but this I know. I love each of them and I need them all. Holy Spirit of God, we need Thee. Come and indwell us, every one of us, we pray, with Thyself. And take the things of Christ and show them to us and prepare us to meet Thee on the clouds on the great day in Thy righteousness and Thy peace. In Jesus' name. Amen.